Sit up straight and puff out your chest. It's your time to learn to invest. You may already have your own investing rules, but it's a good time to sharpen up your tools. Don't wait around for a bear market to rebalance, check levels, and reset. This investing game is kind of like a marathon, and the rule of 72 is one of its phenomenons. So make sure you're set up for success, and we'll punch your ticket on the Investopedia Express. Well, welcome back and welcome again to Financial Literacy Month. You asked, we answered. We tackle your trickiest investing questions with Doug Bonaparte, the Bonafide Wealth, later in the show. But first, April is heating up, my friends, and there are market records all over the place. The Dow Industrials and the S&P 500 both start off the week at record highs, but so does the Eurostock 600. The Nasdaq 100 also at an all-time high, as are about 180 U.S. stocks, including Microsoft, Alphabet, Salesforce, Home Depot, Berkshire Hathaway, Starbucks, Target and the good old Union Pacific Railroad. Sidecar note, did you know that the Union Pacific Railroad was established by President Abraham Lincoln in 1862? Lincoln, the former railroad attorney, always dreamed of a line that would cross the country all the way to California. In 1862, as president, he signed the Pacific Railway Act, authorizing the Central Pacific Railroad of California to build a line east from Sacramento. At the same time, the act chartered the Union Pacific Railroad Company to build west from the Missouri River. The original legislation granted each railroad 6,400 acres and up to $48,000 in government bonds for each mile it completed. That turned out to be a pretty good idea, Abe. Well, back to the future. The cryptocurrency world has gone cuckoo. Dogecoin, that joke of a crypto token named after the Shibu Unu dog and hyped by Elon Musk and Mark Cuban, among others, spiked 400% last week. It's up more than 8,000% this year alone, and the only thing you can buy with it are souvenirs and snacks at a Dallas Mavericks game. It's just one of several altcoins that have gone parabolic this year. Listen to this. BitTorrent is up 2,500%. Terra is up 2,300%. Solana up 1,600%. Binance Coin, 1,200%. FTX Token, 830%. And on and on. You get the point. Can I tell you why these are spiking? I cannot, except to say that there are more buyers than sellers, and the last person to buy truly believes that there's another person right behind them that thinks these tokens are worth more than they paid for them. And then there's Bitcoin. After rocketing to $64,000 last week, it fell below 52000 over the weekend in another one of its famous flash crashes. This one may be tied to reports that the U.S. Treasury may crack down on cryptocurrencies, which may be used for, quote, illegal activities. Coinbase, the largest U.S. cryptocurrency exchange, went public last week through a direct listing. Shares spiked at the open, then slid throughout the day as insiders cashed out. Still, Coinbase, now a public company that made over a billion dollars in revenue last year, is now worth more than the Intercontinental Exchange, the owner of the New York Stock Exchange, and about five other major global securities exchanges. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? Well, if you're not entertained, order up a pastrami and rye and listen to this one. Either their pastrami sandwich is the best in the universe or investors have been eating too many chips because a deli in Paulsboro, New Jersey has a valuation of more than $100 million. The Hometown Deli, which is listed as the sole location for Hometown International, ticker HWIN, is a publicly traded over-the-counter stock, reached a market cap of $113 million back in February, despite posting sales of just $35,000 over the past two years. Hedge fund manager David Einhorn, in a letter to shareholders, warned of the dangers facing retail investors, flagged the deli as a classic example of irrational bubbles that could burst all over the market. 
Einhorn noted that the largest shareholder of the deli is the CEO, CFO, and treasurer, who also happens to be the wrestling coach of the high school next door to the deli. According to the company's latest 10K filing, its single location was closed from March 23rd to September 8th of 2020 because of the coronavirus pandemic. During that time, the company's stock price rose to $9.25 a share from $3.25 per share. The company sold 2.5 million shares last year and has about 60 total shareholders, according to the filing. The pickles must be awesome. We have another monster week ahead, so let's get set up. We'll get a flurry of earnings reports from companies including United Airlines, Coca-Cola, Netflix, and Chipotle, among others. So far, so good for corporate report cards. As of Friday, 88% of companies out of reported earnings have beaten their first quarter earnings per share estimates by an average of 22%. Companies usually beat their forecasts. That's the little game they like to play with analysts, but typically by only 3 to 6%. We'll hear from about 200 companies this week, including United Airlines, which are definitely on our radar. Delta told us this past week that business bookings look really strong for the fall. Is United feeling those friendly skies? We'll also hear results from Netflix. 2022 was the first year Netflix's dominance was challenged by the likes of Disney Plus and other streaming foes. The company usually responds to challenges by pumping billions of dollars into new content and then raising prices to pay for it. That's worked in the past, but there are a lot more options today than there were in Netflix's glory years. We'll also get key reports on the U.S. housing market with existing home sales on Thursday and new home sales and construction permits on Friday. The average single-family home in the U.S. has seen its value rise by an average of 17% in the past year, according to Redfin, and some cities like Austin have seen prices rise by 50%. Apple will hold an event on April 20th called Spring Loaded to show off some new products. The word on the Apple blogs is that the company could reveal new iPads, new iMacs, new AirPods, AirTags, a new Apple TV, and possibly a new Apple Pencil if you happen to need one. Last week, we finally got some insight about how Apple actually pays artists for streaming their music. On Friday, Apple Music posted a letter claiming to pay music artists one penny per stream. Well, that may sound ridiculously low, because it is, but it's two to three times as much as Spotify pays out. But here's how the music business actually operates in 2021. Streaming services like Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Tidal pay rights holders, which are typically record labels, and then the record labels pay the artists. How much Apple or Spotify pays the labels is up to the popularity of the artist. It could be anywhere from $0.08 cents a stream to $0.64 cents per stream. How much the record label then pays the artist is also up to the popularity of the artist. You can pay Beyonce in equity. Give me my check. Put some respect on my check. Over half of Apple's per stream revenue goes to the record labels. Compare that to Spotify, where two-thirds of every dollar goes to the labels. Spotify has about 155 million paying subscribers compared to Apple, which has a little over 60 million. Musicians have been protesting and suing all these streaming platforms to get a better slice of the stream. And then you wonder why legendary artists like Paul Simon and Bob Dylan are selling their music catalogs and cashing in. The answer is a blowing in the wind. Well, April is Financial Literacy Month, although we think that's every month around here. And you've been sending in your questions about saving, budgeting, and investing all month long. This week, we're tackling investing, and you've sent us some serious curveballs. That's why we had to go out and get a heavy hitter to help us answer them. Doug Bonaparte of Bonafide Wealth and a perennial face on the Investopedia list of the 100 most influential advisors rejoins the Express. So good to see you again, my friend. 
Great to be here. Thank you for having me. One of our first questions comes from at Rob Zuga, Doug, and he's asking, what are the most important things to look for when buying a stock? Depends on what you're buying it for, right? Yeah, it really does. So in general, you're looking at key metrics, revenue, profitability, free cash flows. I want to know, are you growing or shrinking in any of these areas? Also take a look at the business model and the space that this business operates. Are they taking market share? Are they growing and competing in the space? Do they have something that's a competitive advantage, something that they have technology, personnel, higher service than other companies? So all these things are great ways to take a look at any company and say, hey, is this something I want to be investing in? And those are what we call the fundamentals. You got to look at the fundamentals of the company and also look at it within the context of its competitors and the industry. Are we talking about a growing business? But also that key factor, Doug, are you talking about investing in this for the long term? Is this a long term holding you want to grow with over time? Or is this a company you want to get in and out of and trade it? And then you're just looking at price, which is a much more technical way of evaluating a stock, right? Yeah. And and that's a really good point because you're going to look at some companies that are really long term growth plays. I mean, these are a lot of your popular tech stocks today. You might not be looking at great fundamentals today, but you know, if you believe or have conviction that what they're doing is going to be a disruptor or going to be the next best thing, then you have to look kind of far down the road to see those things. However, if you're going to be trading or getting in and out in the short term, you're right. Price has a lot to do with that. You're going to bust out some charts, look at some trends. And that's not my forte. So I'm not going to claim that I'm a great technical investor by any stretch of the imagination, but I know lots of people and friends of Investopedia that are. We'll go hit them up. Here's a question from at Dean Kobeer, who says, should stock investors be worried about future inflation? Doug, everyone's talking about inflation these days. We just got a, a reading on it. It is creeping higher, but it's historically really low. So what do you think? Yeah, so it's almost something, certainly keep your eye on this thing, especially as we come out of or really go into a post-COVID environment. I think we're going to heat up the economy real good over these next few years. Everyone's calling it the roaring 20s, the pent-up demand that exists right now. If you thought those kids in South Beach were having fun, think about what their adult, what the adults are going to do who have the money to go really spend this summer and over the next few years. And you know that that's going to heat up an economy. People are going to spend money. You're going to see inflation continue to rise. So that's kind of normal in an environment like that. I guess the question people are really asking is, is it going to get out of hand? And when you couple that with the amount of money we've been printing from COVID relief, from stimulating the economy, you know, is that pendulum going to swing so far the other way that we actually have, whether it's hyperinflation or just a real inflationary environment, you know, go talk to someone who's been around in the 70s and 80s, and, the, and they'll tell you what that looks like. It's, it's not fun for a lot of people. Right. 14% mortgages, long lines at the gas station, all of that. But also it's a double-edged sword, right, Doug? Because you want companies to have pricing power so they can grow their profits, their profit margins. We should return, you know, it should translate into better price performance for the stock. But if prices get out of hand, then consumers can't afford to buy things. Businesses, they curl up in there. They're not as willing to spend. So inflation is a double-edged thing, but you can invest in sectors that do benefit from higher inflation, like some consumer staples companies. Another great question here. Would you suggest passive or active investing for people in their 20s. And just for folks who don't know the difference, passive investing is if you buy an index fund or use a robo-advisor and you just pick some ETFs and just kind of set it and forget it versus that active investing where you're really managing your own portfolio, choosing your stocks, choosing your ETFs, trading them on a frequent basis, rebalancing. So for someone in their 20s, just getting into this, Doug, what's your advice? 
Sure. So I think whether you're in your 20s or in your 60s, for the vast majority of investors, being a passive, disciplined, low-cost investor is the way to go. There are so many things you have to focus on in your life, and unless you're a professional investor, a professional trader, you know, it's probably not investments. Now, obviously, I understand the fun one can have in managing their own portfolio. You can skill up and get good at this. But that's probably better reserved for folks who do that for a living or maybe 5 to 10% of your portfolio. We call that an opportunity portfolio, sure. But the goal is to stay invested. The goal is to stay disciplined. And the goal is to allow that money to compound over time. And passive investing allows you to do that and have more control than active investment. So I got a favor, passive. And it's never been more easy to do it. This is something John Bogle preached back in the early days at Vanguard, but it's even more true today as you have these platforms that'll do it for you and do it pretty effectively, or you work with an advisor like yourself who actually does that investing for you. Set it, forget it, have a plan so you know you're never going out of bounds. And it's probably the easier way to let, help you sleep at night a little bit better as well. Yeah. And, and look, you're in your 20s too here. So you got a lot of things going on. You're, you're trying to get your career started, assuming you're just getting out of college or you're in the first few years of your job. So should you be spending time focusing on investments when you probably should focus on cash flow and having an amazing amount of control around your financial life and building the foundation? Probably not. And I like the idea of having just a little side portfolio. If you do want to stay active and be an active participant markets. It's fun. You learn a ton. It's fun to be a part of that, but I would not put your whole portfolio in there. Great question coming in from Surly522, who says, with recent bond returns being minimal to negative, what would be the new ballast to a modern portfolio? A plus for using the word ballast in the question. (laughs) I got to give it up for Surly. But what do you think? What's the new ballast or the new thing to hold on to in the modern portfolio for that stabilization? Yeah, vocab game real real strong there. So just kind of a point of clarity here. You know, bonds last year, 2020, still put down 6%. But I think we're really referring to yield here that, you know, with rates as low as they are, that, you know, squeezing yield out of of them is is proving to be a challenge. And I, I think you're spot on there. As far as what's going to replace bonds. I mean, you're talking about probably the biggest market in, in, in the securities world here. I'm not sure, you know, bonds are going to be replaced anytime soon. And if you're a younger investor, it's a great volatility dampener. I mean, that's how I use them in practice is to, okay, we don't want to be full on risk. We'll have an allocation to bonds and then can rotate out of that when we want to be risk on or buy a dip or take advantage of an opportunity. So what's going to, I, I feel like I'm being baited into crypto and things like that here with what's going to replace bonds and where you're going to find yield. I don't have the perfect answer, but I do understand that if you're an older investor now and you're relying on yield to pay pretty much for your lifestyle during retirement and bonds ain't doing it for you, you got to take on more risk and where are you going to go find that risk? I'm not sure there's going to be something perhaps with the same risk profile as fixed income, but can deliver more yield than fixed income is offering at this particular moment. And again, feeling like I'm being pushed into asset classes that have yet to be discovered or being created right before our eyes. I see where you're going with this. Very smart question. It is a smart question, but there's also those older investors, or you don't have to be that old to, to be into dividend investing, the old dividend aristocrats. You know, a lot of people think the utilities, they're kind of that more stabilization zone within the equities market, but they're also subject to economic cycles. We saw what happened last year. So it's a good question, and it's a real important question for this time just because rates are low, and we know they're going to be that way until 2023. 
Here's a good question from Junbai who says, why are investors using forward PE, that price to earnings ratio, as a measurement when it's earnings the company hasn't even made yet? This so speaks to the fundamentals of, of investing in the stock market. I love this question because it's simple, but it's also really complex. What's your best answer, Doug? Yeah, I think, you know, the keyword here is traditional. Like things aren't as traditional as as they've once were. You know, you're, we're using definitions and ratios that have been made decades ago, <laughs> half a century ago, and a lot of the analysis that we do. And all of a sudden, here come companies that change the game in their sector or where they are, whether it's automotive industry going to outer space, pretty much heavy in the tech world here. But that's the world that we live in. And guess what? You're, you're not going to use those metrics. It was much easier to be like, all right, well, how many widgets are you producing in your factory? Let's go you know, chart that growth. Wait, wow, what a fantastic new widget design. We've never seen that before. Today, it's like, yeah, we're literally blasting spaceships off and landing them on pads. It's you know, just a completely different world here. So, so perhaps it's really more of a mind shift out of the way that we have done things. And again, if we're talking about disruptive technology or things that are going to change the world that we live in, we have to think 10 plus years down the road. Yeah, you're not going to look at earnings today, you know, to give yourself a price on that stock. So it's definitely more of a challenge. But I think if you can just get past this habit we have to rely on things that are, are more old hat and apply them to, to new hat ways of looking at stuff, you can maybe have an easier time understanding why some things worth what it is. Sure. And looking at a lot of the companies that went public in the last few years, but you could do this over the last 50 or 60 years. Amazon took them years to become profitable. Netflix, years to become profitable. Investors finance their growth. So you want to look at some momentum, whether that's daily active users or the amount of engagement they create, but you want to see these trends, these paths to future growth, which should hopefully mean future profitability, which should therefore hopefully mean a future increase in the stock price. But a lot of companies right now are pre-revenue and definitely pre-profit. So you have to expand your mind when you look at the metrics when you're evaluating these companies today. I love this question from Benjamin.who, who asks, how do you pick which ETFs to invest in, Doug? What's the method? And I guess this really depends on the kind of investor you are and what you're planning to do with them. But generally speaking, if you're talking to someone walking into your office that wants to start investing and they like the idea of exchange-traded products, how are you guiding them? Yeah, start simple. It's going to sound vanilla. It's going to sound very boring. I start with just core ETFs that invest in the index that you want exposure to, large cap, mid cap, small cap on the domestic side. I developed emerging markets, and then you have fixed income, whether you want to do U.S. or U.S. and global. I mean, that that's the essential ones. And, and there's plenty of asset management companies that are providing these core ETFs in each of these places. Then, like you said, think about, well, is there a specific theme I want to be investing towards, whether that's ESG or I'm a growth investor instead of value, and you want to tilt that way? There's almost no end in sight to the ways in which you, know, you can invest or personalize your portfolio. But if you start with the basics and get that broad allocation right and then start to think about how uh, you want to invest specifically, it shouldn't be too hard to go find those uh, ETFs and, and put together a portfolio. But the key here is being consistent right? You don't want to be changing themes all the time. You want to pick something that's right for you. You want to stay invested and allow your strategy to play out over the long term. Otherwise, you're probably going to hurt your returns more than help them. Absolutely. And I love the idea of just laying the foundation, laying the base, buying those core index funds so you know you're covered on the market. If you're a believer that the market will go up over time like it has over the last, I don't know, 10 decades, then you do that. And then, as you say, you pick your sector. If you believe in that sector growth, you're definitely going to find an ETF for that. You're going to find an ETF for sectors that probably don't even exist. There are so many being created these days. So it's really about what your goals are, but cover the foundations first. So you make sure you're invested and you're in there for the long term. 
Another smart question here, and this one's multifaceted, and this is how do you invest in real estate? I'm going to take the, the top of this, Doug, but I would love your perspective because it really depends on what you're talking about. If we're talking about the hard assets like buildings, like apartments, like condominiums, like farmland, then you can buy the hard assets. But if you're talking about you know investing in the companies that manage and own real estate, then you're talking about real estate investment trust, right? And if you're talking about big mall owners or big development owners, that's a whole different type of company. But then, Doug, there's even these peer-to-peer real estate investing platforms you can get involved with today, like CrowdStreet, where you can invest in other people owning their homes. So there's so many different ways, and it depends. What's your basic answer to this very complicated question? Yeah. So I get clients all the time saying they want to invest in real estate and they're usually referring to like going to buy an investment property in a local market or in their hometown or wherever their friends say there's an opportunity. And I think a lot of times they don't realize like you're the landlord. You're, you're literally in charge of maintaining and managing a property and facilitating your tenant and upkeep. And you know, when you're kind of working a full-time job or have a family and do all these things, that's not very practical at times. So looking at REITs and looking at securitized forms of real estate is very attractive to get that exposure, to get that income, and be able to pick and choose things that you might not have access to with the dollars that you have. For example, you want to go buy a piece of World Trade Center? You can't really do that, you know, unless you're ponying up big bucks. And to your point, you know, there's an, even another service called Lex that allows you to buy these buildings at, you know, 250 bucks. You can get access to premier properties in major cities. So even in this space, it's getting really cool, getting really disrupted to give you exposure to things you normally wouldn't have. But again, if you you do want to be someone who manages these properties, that that's there too. And there's no shortage of amazing, you know, success stories of people who've made their millions owning real estate. Right. Just be prepared for those phone calls at four o'clock in the morning when the toilet is clogged at one of the buildings you owned, or there's a flood in the basement and you have to come deal with it. But there are so many ways to get exposure. It's the returns I think that people are attracted to generally when they ask this question. So you're right. There are just so many avenues to do it in, in 2021. Challenging question here from Golden Dragon. Golden Dragon says they were laid off a year ago due to COVID. They withdrew their money from their 401k. Since opened an investment account and been buying stocks for the long term. Golden Dragon's question, Doug, is should they continue to invest the small amount that they withdrew or put it back into their 401k? Challenging question because of the law changes around the pandemic. What's your answer? So I'm going to make some assumptions here that this individual chose to roll over their 401k to an IRA where they were doing their investing as opposed to actually taking money out of the 401k and paying tax and penalty. I hope that's not what happened because that's going to burn. So now we're saying, all right, I've been investing in my IRA. Should I put that back in my 401k? So I would really suggest focusing on you know what you need to do, whether it's getting back into the job environment or the career that you want to be working on or towards. I understood you have that time to be able to focus on stocks, a very 2020 theme. Totally get it. I mean, that's pretty much what everyone was doing when there was nothing to do. But I think perhaps there's a better use of your time by focusing on growing your income and getting back on track here. So nothing wrong with taking that IRA, putting it back into your 401k. If you have time on your side, let it compound, let it grow. But again, who am I to tell you how to use your time? I don't necessarily know how skillful you've become at investing. But look, you can still keep a percent of what you've been working on and invest it yourself. And the vast majority of your money being very disciplined and diversified back in your 401k there. So you can have it both ways. Let's not always be binary about this. 
But I think by and large, I'll be focused on things that are going to help you long-term relating to income. Here's a question from Travis Lewis who asks, what are the benefits of contributing to a Roth IRA if you already contribute to a 401k and taxable brokerage account? Awesome question. And this is leading into Roth conversions. So if you are maxing out your 401k through your employer, you get $19,500 in there in a calendar year, another 5,500 if you're over the age of 50 for your catch up. So you can sock away a lot of money into that 401k. I think it's awesome that you're regularly investing outside of that. But if you're not taking advantage of the Roth vis-a-vis a conversion, you might be leaving money on the table when we're talking about investing in a tax, in this case, tax-free way when you're going to take that money out. So the advantage here is, number one, you have an additional $6,000 you could put into that Roth IRA by first making a contribution to a traditional IRA that's after tax. Number two, if you don't have pre-tax money already sitting in an IRA, meaning it's only in your 401k or Ks, right? you can convert that after-tax money to a Roth and not be restricted by what's called an AIG limitation, meaning you make too much money to make the Roth contribution outright. Now, if you're under that threshold, you can make that Roth contribution. But long story short, another way to get $6,000 into a retirement account that will grow tax-free and come out tax-free. Not only that, but you can take your principal out. If it's a straight up Roth contribution, you can take your principal out at any time, no tax or penalty. If you're doing the conversions, you got five years to wait before you can take that money out. There's a caveat there. So go read up on Roth conversions, go check out what the thresholds or AGI limitations are for getting money in there. But if your goal is to put more money away for retirement in the most tax advantaged way possible, you have an opportunity here to leverage the Roth IRA on top of what you're putting in to your 401k and then do those systematic contributions to the brokerage account and continue you to invest. That, that's what I call gold star status of saving right there. If you get through all those layers. Great answer. And that's why we brought you in here because that's exactly why we needed you. Good question from Travis Lewis and a complicated answer, but there's a reason that Roth IRA conversions were one of the most popular terms on Investopedia over the last six months. People are doing it. Interesting question here from I am Shiva 872 Doug, who asked, they're a college student. They haven't started investing. How much money should they start with? How much time should they devote to investing? 17, 18 years old, they got their whole investing life ahead of them, which is great in terms of compounding interest and, and all the magic that that brings. At the same time, should they be really getting involved in investing and spending time on it at 17, 18? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to sound like the Scrooge here by saying focus more on building the foundation for your financial life, getting cash flow right, right, building that cash reserve, getting very disciplined with how money comes in and out of your life, get systematic with your savings and investing before you even think about these things. But you're right. Look, 17, 18, chilling in high school. You got a job in the summertime. You want to you know, grow that money over the long term. You're being very proactive before you know real life comes to slap you around. Hey, I wish I took the money I made in high school, you know, plot it in Amazon or something and didn't touch it. You know, I wouldn't be working today. I mean, that's, that's the thing. So really cool there. But if you are graduating from college or just getting your career started here, focusing on those foundational areas is going to go a lot further for you. So you can become a disciplined investor when the time is right. And I know it flies in the face of compounding returns because the sooner you get in, but look, the goal of investing is to stay invested. So, you know, if something comes and disrupts your life, cause you got to spend on, I don't know, a medical bill because you're doing something super fun that I can't do anymore, then you know what good is that investment to go now sell out $5,000 of that thing you wanted to invest in for the next 20 years? So yeah, I know, very boomer of me, but listen, build the foundation, 
get started right, then you can go focus on investing and stay invested. Boomer from a not boomer, but also if you really wanted to do it, there are easy ways to connect your bank account with a brokerage account, or if you're too young for that, have a custodian account with your parents or a guardian who can set that up for you and start slow. As you get older, you're going to want to devote more time to it, but it's a good question. All right, Doug, this is one of the most popular questions we get on Investopedia every single day. This is one of our most popular articles, and this is one of the most popular questions. Shouldn't come as a surprise. Comes from Mish912, who asks, what are some of the best ways to start investing with less than $1,000? That's a fantastic question. There are so many ways to do this now. And that's what's awesome about where we are in this world and what technology that we have to be able to do these things. I have no particular favorite. I mean, you could literally go to Fidelity, you could go to Vanguard, you could go to Public, and you can go to your robos. You got Betterment and Wealthfront. There, there's now communities built around these platforms. Public's super cool one that does that. And you can you know invest for as little as a few bucks here on some of these platforms. 10 bucks, 25 bucks, fractional shares in companies you like, set it and forget it on the robo advisors, pick your risk tolerance, do your research, study up, figure out what's right for you, what kind of investor you want to be. Again, I think most people should put that money to work and not have to worry about it, assuming you got the basics right in terms of you're young, you're going to be aggressive. So go for it. Be 100% equities, be diversified. You want to go, you know, you're going to learn a lot, as we said uh, earlier, just by succeeding, but more so by failing. You'll learn what it's like to feel the pain of your $50 investment go down to 25 bucks because, you know, you went for some crazy biotech. I don't know, but that's where you learn those lessons and you figure yourself out as an investor, what you do and what you don't like. And maybe you're like, hey, I'm never trading again. I'm just going to go into index funds here and focus on the things I can control, like my job and what I do in my spare time. Or you might find out you're particularly good at this and you carve out a good portion of your investable assets to go build your wealth because you're you're a savvy trader. You can sniff out opportunities. So go learn, go figure it out. This is all good stuff. Build the foundation first, but all good stuff. I love that too. And you're right on the fractional shares. You don't have to be able to afford the full price share of a company. You can buy fractional shares these days. Trading is free on these brokerage platforms. Not that you want to be trading all the time. Couldn't be more accessible. Couldn't be easier to start investing. And there is tons of products, but as Doug mentions, cover those foundations, cover the basics, and then branch out as you learn more. But great opportunity. Good luck, Mish912, on your investing career. Great questions and great answers. Doug Bonaparte from Bonafide Wealth, thanks so much for coming on The Express again and helping us tackle these. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Joseph in Hobie Sound, Florida. Joseph will be sporting the sporty Investopedia socks out on the dock real soon. Joseph suggests relative strength this week, and since we're focusing on investing and trading this week, we like this term. Relative strength, according to Investopedia, is a measure of the price trend of a stock or other financial instrument compared to another stock, instrument, or industry. It's calculated by taking the price of one asset and dividing it by the other. You can also look at the relative strength of an individual asset like a stock, commodity, or index using the relative strength index. The relative strength index also called RSI, is a momentum indicator used in technical analysis that measures the magnitude of a recent price change to evaluate overbought or oversold conditions in the price of that asset. The RSI is displayed as an oscillator, a line graph that moves between two extremes and can have a reading from 0 to 100. It was originally developed by J. Wells Wilder and introduced in a seminal 1978 book, New Concepts in Technical Trading Systems. Good suggestion, Joseph in Hobie Sound, Florida. Enjoy your socks. 
We're going to let Steve Jobs take us out this week. Here's Jobs, the legendary founder and CEO of Apple, speaking at the 1997 Apple Worldwide Developers Conference, talking about what drives the company's product ambitions. And as we have tried to come up with a strategy and a vision for Apple, um, it started with what incredible benefits can we give to the customer? Where can we take the customer? Not, not starting with, let's sit down with the engineers and, and figure out what awesome technology we have and then how are we going to market that. Um, and I think that's the right path to take. It's hard to argue with that. But who are you building or designing or producing for this week? Who's in your mind as the end customer or visitor or listener or reader of your product? I know who's in my mind, and I thank you every night and day for tuning in, for reading our newsletters, and for coming to our website. You make us better. Here's to a week of relative strength and compounding dreams. Express out. <laughs>